Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their 0 to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.fm. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers, and you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us. We'll give you the first 30 days no risk, and we guarantee being on time and on budget. Or we finish the project at no extra cost. Contact us at onestop.fm. Let's talk about your SaaS project today. Today, I'm really excited to have Andrew Warner on the Big Break Software Podcast. Andrew is the founder of Mixergy, a great resource for SaaS founders to listen to startup stories other than this platform. Today, Andrew and I will talk about the book he has coming out, some of the big things he learned over the years interviewing over 2,000 founders, and other startup stories that he's found doing Mixergy. How are you today, Andrew? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to. have been trying to for a little while, so thanks for your uh, time. And Why don't you give a quick intro just for people that may not know you? I started out with an, uh, with an online greeting card company um, slash email newsletter company. What we did was we allowed people to send online greeting cards to each other. And while they did that, they signed up to our email newsletter, built that up to 400,000 greeting cards sent a day, over 20 million people on the email list. It did great. And then I just needed some time out and I, I just went bike riding for years on the you sold it. highway. You sold it. I did. You, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then just hung out for a few years and did all the things that I didn't get to do in high school and college, meaning go out, have fun, do things that are not work-related. And then I came back and started doing these interviews about 14 years ago. And as I've done them, I experimented with the way that I host conversations, with the way that I monetize it, and with uh, the whole whole medium. Is Mixergy basically just podcasts, or you have other businesses that go with it? So the main part is the podcast, which uh, has had on top uh, entrepreneurs in the SaaS space. But also, I added a, I I added an educational component where an entrepreneur would come on and teach something within the interview. I said, "How about you come back and actually teach it more formally?" And so they did, and I worked with them to create that master class, to record it, to publish it up on the site, and then we sold it on a membership basis, and that's been going on for years too. The okay, first so version of that, by the way, I got ridiculed for. I got ripped in the uh, in online communities tremendously because people said information wants to be free. It is okay to sell software. It is not okay to sell information. Why would you? Information should be free. It's easily accessible. Anyone should be able to read it. Ba ba ba. Right? Incredibly ripped into it. Meanwhile, it just grew and. Every single day, somehow one of my filters stopped getting triggered, and every single day now I get an email from Stripe showing me revenue that comes from that. This thing that creates revenue on an ongoing basis that I created years ago that people were upset, insulted, aghast that I would create. Mm-hmm. And so the 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 podcasting is – because I know when I listen to it, you have like a host Gator and some yep. of these – 
What's the sort of breakdown of revenues? Is it mostly, is it like 80% coming from the, the info courses and then some sponsorships or? You know, it kind of goes back and forth. I'm so glad that by interviewing entrepreneurs who are in the membership space, I learned a big lesson. They told me, stop, don't, we said, stop looking for one revenue source, but instead allow yourself to diversify. So there were years when the advertising did practically nothing. It was $2,500 a month for a few years when the membership was doing tens of thousands a month. And I thought, why am I even charging for ads? Let's just get rid of it and focus on nothing but content that I sell to the audience, the membership, the courses. That's the part that's growing. And then suddenly podcast had a moment, advertisers wanted to come on, and I realized that I could diversify my revenue and advertising just jumped, just jumped and jumped and jumped. And I was glad that, I, that I'd kept both. And what it allows me to do is, yes, diversify my revenue so I'm not dependent on any one source, but also experiment a little bit more. So for example, you learn a lot about your audience by trying to sell them something, get a sense of where they are. If you sell stuff that's very basic, you realize that you have people who are new. So I, I didn't realize, for example, that I had in my audience people who are new to entrepreneurship. I thought everybody in the audience had started a business, had obsessed on business because that's the way I was, because that's the way a lot of people I interviewed were. I had no idea there were people in the audience who were brand new, who were listening to the interviews to find out what entrepreneurship is like, to see what they could do, and to kind of get their, their mind going on what they could do themselves. And then I decided, you know what, let's accept an ad from HostGator. HostGator tried for months to advertise. I said, let's do it. And one of the things I realized was a lot of the people who were signing up for HostGator were signing up for brand new web packages for brand new ideas that they were experimenting with. And that was very helpful. Now, could I have done surveys and found that out? Yeah, I, I suppose I could. But surveys give you numbers. Money gives you meaning. I want to know mm -hmm. for sure how important is it to them? How active are they with it? And that, that told me a lot. And so when you come to price something like that, you, you sound like you sort of drifted away from How do you even price something like that? Because this is valuable. Yeah, like so how do you say like this is going to be X amount a month? Because you know HostCater probably has a big marketing budget. This is valuable real estate on your show, right? You open up with yeah. them. So how do you price something like that? It's an experiment. It's, a, it's an experiment. In the beginning, there's one way to do it. Later on, there's another. I'll tell you the beginning way. The beginning, you don't know what you've got. Yes, in some cases, you could just run uh, ads from Ad Network, see what they're willing to pay, and then get a sense of it. But I think when you're doing that, what you end up with just is average revenue, and that's not enough. For me, I want to know not not what does someone else value my audience at and think that sponsors will pay. I want to know what my audience is really worth and how, how can I get the most value out of what I'm offering. And so I found FreshBooks. I saw that they were advertising online and I said, hey, could somebody, could you please, I found this one guy at FreshBooks who was in online community said, could you please spend a little time with me on the phone? Tell me how you think about advertising. You're incredibly helpful in this community. Can you please help me off the community? And he said, yeah, sure. And he walked me through his thinking. He did a screen share with me and just started showing me the little sites that did well. And that was mind blowing. He liked little sites. I thought yeah. little sites were not big enough for them to worry about, but he liked them. I said, why? He said, because they have people that really care about the site. They pay attention to the stuff around because we create our own unique ads there. They're noticing them. And he said specifically, look at this, it's, a, it's an audience of freelancers. We're fresh books. We allow people to send out invoices. Freelancers hate to send out invoices. If we could make it easier, they could get paid faster and they love it. And so I realized, oh, it's a different way of thinking than I assumed. 
to go, let me go just a little bit further. Here's what I did with them. I said, I, I don't know what this is worth. How about if I charge you $650 or 750, I forget the exact number right now. How many new customers would you want? They gave me a number. I said, great. Let me run the ads. I promise you, you are going to get the, the number of uh, new customers that you're looking for, or I'll give you your money back. You don't have to pay. In fact, you, I'm not even going to take money up front, so you don't even have to count on me. And at first they said no, and then I said, I promise, th there's no risk here. And they said, all right, fine, let's do it. They did it. They tested. They told me how many new customers they got. They got enough for it to be worth the 750 or so that I was charging for the ads. And now I had a price, so I can go to other customers and say, FreshBooks paid 750. They saw that it was worth 750. Check in with them. I'll give you an introduction to the person of FreshBooks who's the buyer. I know this is worth 750. What do you say? Do you want to buy? Boom, I had another sale and another and another and another. And then the first stage is done. Yeah. And so from Mixergy, the breakdown, are there any other revenue streams or businesses that, you, that you're running now that help with the diversification of the, of I the did. revenues? We did different. When I got excited about something and wanted to go deeper in it or when the audience had a deep need for something and they wanted to go deeper in it, I'd create these deeper, richer, longer courses where we would spend months on a topic and I would get on a call with people and work with them one-on-one -on -one and have it. So it's like, co like, a, like a coaching, sort of a coaching source then. Yeah, it's called now cohort classes, but it, we did it before the software was available for it. We would just do it with Zoom and do it with chat and do it with uh, Google Docs and stuff like that. Yeah. You were running some chat bots for a while too. Whatever happened mm -hmm. with that? I sold that part of the business off. My realization with chatbots was I don't like to use email. With my closest friends, I'm not using email. I'm using text messages. When something becomes important, I switch it to messaging apps. I said, why is it that when it comes to working with my team, I'm emailing? When it comes to working with my audience, I'm just flinging more email at them. There should be a better way. And so I started playing with this tool called ManyChat, and I liked it. It made it really easy to connect with people with one button. I could connect with them on chat. We could automate the whole experience. Instead of sending them email, I could send them chat messages. They could interact with it instead of just reading it. And that did so well. I invested in ManyChat. I invested in this other company that was doing chat, um, Assist. I just got really deep into it, and I started teaching it first uh, for free to people who I'd interviewed on, on my podcast on Mixergy. And then as I helped them build it, I said, there could be something else here. I shouldn't just be doing this for free. Let's try charging. And like I said, uh, s surveys don't give you nearly enough data. If you start charging, you see people's real meaning and passion and interest. And so I started charging for it and people paid me to do it with them. And then I said, let's just teach it. And so I started teaching that and it became its own thing. We had like a whole team of people working on it at our company. We had hundreds of people learning. We then added, um, we added this, this place where we could do services for people. So if they just didn't want to learn how to do it, but they wanted a chatbot built for them, we added that. It was just, it became a whole thing. And it's still growing or going strong. I actually have lost touch with it after I sold it. But the reason I sold it was I ran a marathon on every continent. And after I finished Antarctica, I said, okay, I think I want to just take a step back and rethink things. And that was part of the stepping back. There was someone, Beth, Mary Beth uh, Johnson, who was just really good at chatbots. She had her own direction for it. It was so similar to mine that I said, how about we partner up? And then after Antarctica, I said, how about you take it over? And so she bought it from me and she's been running it. And how, how was it? How was the sale? Was it like, I mean, was it, did it contribute to the, to the revenue? Was it a big sale or? It wasn't a huge sale. My big concern with it was reputational risk. 
I did not want, I did not want people who had bought something to feel let down. I did not want people who were part of this to feel let down. I did not want somebody there. There are all these companies who they'll pay you a ton of money. All they want is the list so then they could bombard your list with stuff because while it's still hot. And I didn't want that. I just wanted my reputation to continue. I wanted that. So and that asset. Yeah. So how did it feel like when you saw it was, did it feel, was, did the project end up feeling like a success or was it, how did you feel about it? I felt it was a success. Um, I, I was still in, involved with it for a while and then I, and then I took a step back and I think it, it also yeah. happened as COVID hit. So everything became really difficult to figure out. So as soon as COVID hit, I was suddenly now deciding to take a step further back and just do some homeschooling. I wanted to see what that's like with my kids. I wanted to see maybe maybe education for kids is a is an area I want to pursue. So I started obsessing on homeschooling with my kids. I started obsessing on staying home. And then Mary just adjusted the business and adjusted the business. And I was there to help out with, with a lot of it. But at some point, she just didn't need me anymore. And I transitioned away. Yeah. I wanted to get to one of your favorite opening questions. Uh, what's a win for you? What What would you consider a win? So that's an important question, actually. I think we don't do that enough in conversations. I will have somebody schedule a call with me, and then they freaking ramble for the first five minutes. Now, it's five minutes of rambling seems like it's not that big a deal. For me, it's a big deal. I cannot yeah. stand to be unfocused, especially when I don't know where it's going. And so what I started doing with people, if I'd have a 15-minute call with them because they needed my help, even if they were they thought they were being specific in their request. In the call, I say, what's a win for you? What are you trying to get out of this 15-minute call with me? And sometimes they'll just say, I'm really struggling to figure out how I can meet these five people. I'll say, great, tell me why you want to meet them. What have you been trying to do? I can introduce you to these three. Let me see what you're sending out to the other two. Great, that's horrible messaging. That's why they're not opening. Adjust it this way and be ready to let them go. Don't be so obsessive on those two. And the other three I could help you with, but improve with the other two. Boom, now we're getting down to business. I love that, I love that. So when it comes to interviews, what I discovered was there are people who are just rambling and promoting, and I didn't know how to stop it. The number one guy, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna call him out on this, is Tim Sykes. Tim mm -hmm. Sykes is this guy who teaches people uh, yeah, how to invest in the stock market, you know? Yeah, yeah, right? penny stocks and stuff, right? He's gone huge since he was interviewing with me, largely because he's yeah. such a good self-promoter. He picked up on Instagram when the rest of the people in business seemed to think it was nothing but artistic photos for people who don't matter. He just he decided early on he was going to go to the bank, get a million dollars in cash, throw it on his bed, take pictures of it, and then take it back to the bank. Like that type of thing, the whole experience of getting it out of the bank, of having trouble taking a million dollars out and all that, he played up. So he's good at what he does. And then he used all of his attention from teaching people about stocks and talking about his investments to create all these different uh, websites and software for investors. But he would not freaking stop promoting. Anything I asked, he'd have a great promotional response to. I said, how mm -hmm. do I stop people from promoting? And I realized something. Most people are not machines like Tim. Most people are really caring. And he's a caring person too. Mm -hmm. But most people just want to have a good conversation. The reason that they promote is because there's a team of people who count on them to grow their audience. There's a team of people who count on them to get more customers. A team of people who count on them to get more hits to their sites. And that's why they're doing the interview, to satisfy the team. And so they're so anxious about getting their result 
that they won't stop trying to get it in awkward ways. And so before the mm -hmm. interview starts, I now say, what's a win for you? And people will say something as easy as, I really need a link back to our site. It's a brand new site. It's a brand new business. I'll talk about my past business. I'm doing this because we're trying to get some links or I'm trying to hire or they say this is just for biz dev and I could tell that they're in they're in a place where what they're trying to do is raise money or sell their company and they want a little bit of attention on themselves so they could help uh, navigate that so I go great I see that I got it I think we could handle that once you do that for a person they're now it's no longer on them it's on the person who invited them if the thing's a failure it's that person's fault but they trust me enough to get it for them. And so they tell me, Andrew, I need new hits. Andrew, we've got a new book. Great. I've got it. Now let's talk about the story. Doing that takes away a lot of the pressure. So you do that pre-show then? It's not something that you would do in the interview? I do it before we get started. I don't do it on the pre-interview. Okay, so I don't do it in the calendar. Before the interview starts, we get on. I say, what's a win for you? I say, got it. I say, what are you trying to get out of this interview? Okay, that makes sense. Um, tell me. Truthfully, so I'm here to promote the book. Yeah. Truthfully, that's the you, win. So when yeah. I say, when I ask you that now on the show, you're saying, I'm here to promote the book, which, yes. you know, obviously we're going to do. The book I, called I, Stop uh, Asking yeah. Questions. So when you were asking me a question about what was my past, there was a part of me that was a little anxious, like, oh, is this going to be a history of Andrew Warner or, or what? <laughs> all right, fine. Let's go along with it. And then you were asking me another question. Another question I thought, all right, Andrew, calm down. He said that we we're going to get to the book at some point. Just let it go. And that allowed me to not be so anxious about hitting my goal, knowing you got it. Yeah, yeah. So tell me some of the things that, uh, obviously <laughs> you're, you're a great interviewer. What are some of the, the ways that you use interviewing outside of your business? And like some of our listeners, how can they use interviewing like to help their business? What skills have you gotten from it? What do you get out of it, becoming a good interviewer? One of the things that happens I've noticed with sales for me is, like I'll, I'll give you an example. I sell ads on the podcast occasionally myself. I'll get on a call with someone. They get really interested about buying the ads. In fact, they're the ones who reached out to me. We don't do any outbound. We just talk to people who have inbound interest. And then they stop responding. They, they wanted to know. They wanted the ads. They, they just stopped following up with me. They stopped responding to my follow-up. And I thought, well, now all I have to do is just say, well, are you sure? Do you want these ads? There's time pressure or I think I have a new opportunity or tell me how things are different. It just, there's nothing there. And I realized what I need is what I do in my interviews, which is a little bit of a personal connection with the person. If you have a personal connection, you have an opportunity to stay in touch with them. If you have a personal connection, even if they leave the company, you could reach out to them at the next company and say, hey, friend, what happened? You guys were expressing interest and they could give you inf inside information that they wouldn't just give a stranger that they were approaching for ads. And so I make a, a conscious effort to come up with personal uh, conversation with the person, not to let it meander forever, but we get into personal stuff to use some of the techniques I use to get a guest to tell me about their family life, their personal life, their marriage, their divorce, to use those techniques to allow both me and my customer to get personal. So for example, there was one person, a who wanted to buy an ad with it, with us. I'm, I'm hesitating because I'm thinking, do I want to be open about people? I, one of the things that I got a note about from my publisher is they said, Andrew, are you sure you want to include this name and that name and that name over there? You're being too open about people's names. And I realized, yes, I do in the book. Otherwise, there's no credibility if I keep hiding people's names. But yeah. maybe in podcasts. Do you ask the people for the, do you ask the permission? 
it's in the podcast, so I think it's okay. You know, yeah. if, if I'm talking to you in a podcast and I then go back in my book and say, here's how I got him to say that thing, it's in the, it's in, it's in yeah, the book so with it's your name. I'm not feel saying like it's, it's open information. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. And then let people go back and see their own interview and see the interview and see how I did it, which I think is kind of cool too. Yeah. Um, so what I did with this, with as soon as I got on, I said something about what was going on with me. I said, oh, my wife is, my wife is yelling at me. I don't think we're really upset with each other, but we're now working from home because my office is shut down because of COVID. And the two of us, I, I don't i don't know, we're just like getting on each other's nerves. We really need a date night. Well, what do you do for date night? And now we're talking about date night. And now this person who's a sponsor is telling me about problems with her husband. And now there's a relationship. And so, boom, you've got a closeness. It matters beyond the business. No one's going to care about buying an ad from me more than they care about buying an ad from Tim Ferriss or Jason Calacanis or the tons of other business podcasts unless they care about me first. So that's important, right? Since you also know that I'm anal and I need to get back to, to work, let me tell you my transition back into it. If you ever cut somebody off and say, all right, we should get back to work after they said something, it feels awkward for them. They feel guilty for having taken you to their family life, right? Like if yeah, yeah. if you're telling me about what's going on in your in your family, and I go, actually, we should get back to talking about the ads that you called about. It's a problem. Yeah. What I do is I say, you know, we should get back to talking about the ads. I know you called about that, but tell me, how long have you been married? So now I'm saying we're going somewhere, but I'm also showing that I've got a little bit more interest, and so we can close this off without having it feel awkward, without me cutting you off from your personal conversation that maybe you're more excited about than the company you happen to be working for right now. So boom, use the same interview techniques there. I use them at the playground with my kids' uh, parents to get connections with them. I use it with strangers wherever we go. It's absolutely an amazing thing to have done. Over 2,000 interviews, I study how I do these interviews, and then I use them in conversations everywhere. So it's it's rapport building essentially. But is do you yes. say that is it something that you're that you feel like you're particularly good at because of your personality, or do you think it's something that no. anyone no anyone could anyone could get good at it? Like could no. I become as good as yes. you at, at 100%. interviewing? Really, that's 100%. interesting. Okay, just you know experience what? then, or is it, I, or is there a technique? You know what? You'd think that it would come from parents. My parents used to have people over all the freaking time. I used to take the books that I was reading into the basement. We had an unfinished basement. Nobody ever cared about it. My family never went to the basement. I would sit there in that dank, ugly basement on a folding chair reading my books to stay away from all the people that my family would have over. Mm. And they would talk about all the food that they were reading, the Persian food my mom made, the Persian food they made. Like, who gives a rat's ass about any of it? I'm downstairs. They would, And so they, they'd feel like it's a little awkward, but who cares? That was me. At one point, I said, I've got to get good at this. This was after I sold that company. And I said, I'm just going to go out every night. I'll ride my bike all day. And then at six out of seven nights, I'm going to go out and I'm just going to talk to strangers as many as I could. And that helped me get really comfortable. When I did interviews, though, something else happened. I suddenly was doing multiple interviews a week. Yeah. I started paying for transcripts. I paid tens of thousands of dollars to have my interviews transcribed over the years. I would then go over the transcripts and say, why did that person say something a little bit more open. Why did that person enjoy that that conversation more? Let's go back and see what I said before. And when I saw that something worked multiple times, I would name it and I would put it in a Google Doc. And then I started bringing in producers and they would go over the transcripts with me. And I would mm -hmm. say, why do you think this worked? Why didn't it work? And we would study it and we would add it to a Google Doc. And finally, 
I started bringing coaches. And so one of the coaches was the producer of Inside the Actor Studio. I saw an Inside the Actor Studio, major actors, instead of give the same old answers, instead of promoting their movies, start to freaking cry like babies on television. I said, I gotta, I gotta find out how they do it. I hired their producer. We would go over every one of my transcripts like it was the Torah. I mean, we we're going like word for word. Why this? Why that? How about this? How about that? Try this next time. Try that. And boom, we hit on something. We hit on a process for understanding how to have conversations that have deep rapport, that have deep substance, because I'm not just looking to hang out with these people and have rapport with them. I got enough friends. I'm looking to understand how they built their businesses in a way that they didn't even know they understood. And then I want to be able to do more and more and more and more of it consistently and not just have one of these situations where sometimes you have a great conversation, sometimes not. Who knows? It's the other person's fault or it's the rhythm of the day or God knows what. I want to be precise. I want to be consistent. I want to be studied at it and I want to obsess. So I don't have a personality of somebody who's super social, though I am incredibly social now. I have the personality of someone who's obsessive, who will sit and read those books in the basement as a kid, who will sit and read the transcripts in my office as an adult. And by doing that, I got good at conversations. And when you're good at something, you can't wait to do more of it. So yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, do I want to go out tonight? Do I want to go out tomorrow? Who do I get to go talk to? It's fun. So do you, so you have a script then, or is it more like so you just some sort of like some feeder no questions script, that kind of... No script, no consistent questions techniques all techniques ah techniques and okay nothing but a set of techniques that you've named that we've understood that are rep re repeated so okay. for example one technique is it's called the shoved fact when you're in a conversation with somebody like but i know just to beat you to the punch when you sort of drop the uh, marathon running and uh, that yes. was sort of a shove fact perfect right? right why did i have to stick that in who it has nothing to do with what we're doing here. No one's listening to this going, I love SAS and marathon if Andrew loves marathon running, right? But I love marathon running. I stick it in hoping somebody will talk to me about that, hoping somebody will acknowledge me for having done this thing that took me so long. Which is very impressive, yes. right? Everyone's going to be very impressed. Right. So, I mean, yeah. Right, and that's a shoved fact. And if you pick up on these little shoved facts instead of going, that's kind of a weird thing, or instead of being judgmental and going, Andrew wants to show off or Andrew wants to complain about something, but you pick up and you go, ooh, Andrew didn't have to say he had an argument with his wife. Andrew didn't have to say about that. And you ask about it or you bring it up in conversation. Now you've got something that tapped into the soul of the person, yeah. the desperate need that they have would you do that in a show though would you just break off oh, yeah. and start talk, talk about running or something like that for 15 minutes if the minutes? person you know? did it absolutely you would um, so if, so it doesn't it doesn't have to be all about business and not it's not andrew geeking out on on founder stories and stuff like that it's if you if he if they drop in something that you want to break off on that's totally outside of business you're comfortable you don't try to rein them back into the to the sort of the the topic, the main topic of the uh, show. You need it. You need a little bit of color. You need a little bit of understanding. When I wrote my book, I had a professional editor go through. And one of the things that she said was, she said, you're telling the story about, about six people having scotch at the office, and then you're going into the facts. She said, give us a little bit of a setup. Yeah. And I realized, oh yeah, things that don't seem important are important to help people understand the things that are important. So it's we're standing at this white table with these tall, tall uh, bar stools where people are sitting and talking loudly. And the got right, you're setting up the stage so that people understand what's coming up, and then they care about the conversation. I think the same thing happens in 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 work conversations. 
And in podcasts, we need that social. We need that personal in order to understand the person. I'll give you an example. People say that uh, Steve Jobs picked the worst, uh, or not the worst, They picked the, they, that he picked a bad biographer because Walter Isaacson did not understand some of the components of the iPhone. He got some of the metals wrong, and those are clearly easy to check facts. But you think, why did Steve Jobs, who's so obsessed about every detail, when he's finally allowing a biographer into his life, allowing Walter Isaacson in? And what I've come to realize is Walter Isaacson might not have gotten a lot of things right, like the metals that were used in the iPhone. But he was intentional about talking about how Steve Jobs would have multiple cups of of orange juice brought to him to get the right one, that he would not have furniture in his house because he couldn't pick the right furniture, that Steve Jobs would spend time talking about with his wife whether they want the European-style uh, uh, washer-dryer or the American-style washer-dryer because one would let the clothes last longer, the other would be more uh, energy-efficient, and those types of issues would keep him from, from making a move. Now, that seems so unimportant when you're studying the life of a person who created some of the biggest technology breakthroughs of our lifetime, but you get a sense of the person and you care about the person when you see the things that go around the business, the personal aspects, when you see that he had an average house in Palo Alto that was kind of small, if you discover whether he kept his back door locked or unlocked, you're never going to go, oh, he kept his back door unlocked. That is the secret to building the next iPhone. I'm going to leave my back door unlocked. No, but you're going to care about the person. You're going to feel a sense of who they are, their humanity, and then you could pay attention to the facts and the important aspects that have to do with business. And I do the same thing in interviews. If somebody brings up a little bit of their personal life, I absolutely go for it especially if they're dying to talk about it because then we've gotten to know them a little bit more and they feel heard and they want to give me more. Okay, so that's part of the, the, the techniques, breaking yeah. off, getting personal. And it, you always seem to want to dig into failure. Um, why do you feel like going into failure is so important? I think when we study success, we, have, um, we end up with a warped view of what it takes. So a good example of it is like, how, how many times do you hear a successful person who would set goals? And we think, all right, goal setting actually leads to success. Well, if you look at people who are failures, they write goals all the time too, so maybe it's not goal setting. I think we need to really understand in failure what, what happens. And also to just take away some of the pain of failure, to make it okay to fail. And so I think that it's important to talk about those, to talk about failures, to so, understand, to understand what, what the people who failed have in common with the people who succeeded. So we stop saying that those, those in common features are what led to success. And would you all, is it all, is, would you say that that's part of one of the techniques? Like every show I need to hear how this guy deals with failure or is it just I think so. when it comes up? So that's probably so, one yeah. of the techniques. Yeah, we absolutely include that. And so I'll tell you something. I've had guests not show up or get angry at me because I brought up some kind of failure in their lives before the interview. Like they see our notes, we're open about what we're doing. They'll see it and they just won't want to show up. What we've discovered is it's good throughout the interview to include some setbacks, failures, problems. People care about the person. They understand how the person overcame those setbacks in order to achieve the success that we're there to do the interview about. But it's not good to ask them about it within a pre-interview too early. 
And so we'll often wait till the end of the interview to ask about a failure, to ask about their big challenges, to wait till after they told us about how much money they made, how big their business is, to wait until after they brag about how they got this and how they did that. And then we say, by the way, we could use some, if we don't have information about what challenges you had, what setbacks, people are going to think that this is just all a lie, that you're not human, that there's not a reason to care about you. What are some of the challenges? And then they go into the challenges and we list them at the end, but I sprinkle them throughout the interview. What are some of the best failure stories that you've heard that you, that what one, one, what comes to mind right now? A really good one. You know what? There was one period when I did a failure series and of all the failure stories that I had on there, this one story, I don't even remember the person, but I can picture him in my mind's eye was one that just stood out for me. It was a guy who basically did nothing and it was because he was just too afraid to promote. He was too afraid to talk, to sell. So he would create these things in his mind and it wasn't until he did the interview that we both realized he didn't ever tell anyone about it and sell it. He didn't ever say, come and buy this thing from me. Um, there's another uh, example of someone else who's done that. That's, that's much more common than we realize. The founder of Manly Bands, these are rings, wedding rings um, for men. Mm-hmm that have a look that men would want to carry, would want to wear for years. They have this whole presentation online that makes men want to go shop online for these rings. The packaging feels masculine and also feels modern and uh, like attentive to their customer. This guy created so many different businesses. He just did not promote any of the ones before. With Manly Bands, he decided that he was going to promote using online ads. And by then, he'd already learned a little bit about search engine optimization, online marketing, started buying a few ads, and then he started to actually sell this thing, and that's what helped it take off. And in the interview, you could hear me ask him about all the failures leading up to the success. And you could hear him get to the realization that he was not promoting the other businesses. And realizing that was important, not for him, but for the audience, for me. It's, It's helpful. It's helpful also to see somebody just hit their head against the wall proverbially proverbially, for so many years and then later on in life hit the thing that works and then it's now doing what? 10 plus million million dollars a year selling wedding rings to men. It's just phenomenal, phenomenal to see that. And you're also big into getting stories from people. Is that another one that you would every yes. single show you need to get a story? Is it like you try to, to string together a, a stories after story to make sort of yes. to make to illustrate each point that you're yes. That you're, so you anything that I ask you a question and I want you to tell me a story back yes. rather than an answer. I need the story from the person, and I okay. and I recommend that everybody try to use stories to explain their points as much as possible. I'll give you an example. This guy, Rowit, I did an interview with him. He worked with SanDisk. He left SanDisk to go start his company. Mm-hmm. We asked him why. The easy answer would be to say, I felt undervalued. I felt I wasn't going anywhere at the company. That's the answer that anyone would give. With a little bit of work, you could get into the story that he ended up telling in the podcast, which was, he said, you know, one day my boss's boss came to me and they said, you're now a director and you can take on the director responsibilities. And he goes, this is great. He's happy. He does the work. After, I think it was a couple of days, they come to him and they say something that makes him realize this isn't the full-time director thing. This is an interim position. While the director is out, he gets to be the director temporarily. 
And then the new director, I mean, the, the director comes back and he goes back to his old work. He's like, his world was rocked. He says the next day, he couldn't, literally couldn't get himself to leave the car in the, in the parking lot and go back into the office. He just couldn't go back to that. And that's what made him finally say, I'm listening to all these podcasts about entrepreneurship. I'm learning all this stuff. I need to do something. And until a point in his life, he wanted to go and be the good little boy that his mom raised, meaning go to school, learn, become an engineer. His parents would have been so proud if he got the next level of education, which was to go get an MBA. That was his plan. He'd saved up money. He decided, I'm not going to use my money to go get another degree that's going to set me into another position like this where somebody decides whether I'm an intern this and that or a full-time this and that. And he says, I'm taking my money. I'm going to invest it in other entrepreneurs as a way of learning. By investing in companies, I could figure out what works and what doesn't more than going to get an MBA. He decides to quit his job. He invests in this one guy and he realizes, or he talks to this one guy and realizes he doesn't need money. He needs systems. This person was buying sites on Flippa. Mm-hmm. And he thought he needed more money to buy more sites, but he was overwhelmed by the sites that he got. He needed somebody to manage these sites properly so he could keep owning and growing them. And that's what they did. They got from, from nothing to over a million dollars in sales. And throughout, by the way, he'd been emailing me and updating me and saying this idea that you thought Andrew was not going to work. It's actually working. The revenue's growing. And now we care about him. If all he is is a guy who comes on my podcast or frankly comes to a dinner conversation and talks about how he had this idea and now it's growing and growing and he keeps updating us, we're like, all right, fine, we heard you. But if he's the guy who suffered at that job, who couldn't get himself out of the car when he couldn't, when he couldn't get the role that he wanted, when he was feeling underappreciated, now we're rooting for him. Mm-hmm. And now we also say, well, he's just a guy like us. If he could do it, we could do it. What did he do? What did he do that was so different? And when he says to us that he starts systemizing his business using tools like Zapier and and project management software and where he tells you about how he's using Airtable, you take that seriously. You go, that's all it is. Well, tell me how you use it. And now we understand. Now we care to learn. Now we think if he did it, then we could do it too. That's the goal of a story. And frankly, it's memorable. Now, I yeah. guarantee you people are going to people who hear this are going to remember Rohit's story. They may not even remember that his new company is Automation Engineer. They're going to remember some dude that Andrew talked about on some podcast said it. That's right. And the story. And then it's easier to pass on, too, as a soundbite mm-hmm. to somebody else. So you can say, oh, there's this podcast where this guy, I don't even remember, but he was talking about this. Right. And that's how you, and that's how you can spread, you know, these ideas from the stories. So now, now, most people are going to sit and they're going to, as podcasters, they're going to look for stories. They're going to say, tell me a story. If they're a little more persistent, they might say, because stories matter, because people remember stories. Yeah. It doesn't work. Now, again, I've got thousands of uh, interview and pre-interview experiences to use here to tell you that when you ask someone, unless they're a natural storyteller, tell me a story, they freeze up. or Because they they're on the spot. You the put rest. them on the spot. and the, yeah, Right. A story seems so formal. Or a story seems like something you tell your kids before they go to sleep. It's it's a mind snack. It's not what professionals do at business. So here's how we get stories out of people. We ask them about a thing, and then we say, do you have an example of that? So if they say, I was undervalued, we say, do you have an example of how they mm-hmm. undervalued you? Yeah. When they say that they were underappreciated, we say, can you think of a time that you felt underappreciated? You're looking for the one. A story is different from facts because facts 
could be aggregates of information. A story is about one time, one person getting up, going into work, having this thing happen to them and them doing something in return and so on and so forth. So the, the name of this show is The Big Break Software Podcast. If I was going to ask you, Andrew, when did you feel like you had your big break? How would I sort? How would I elicit a story from that? You might start asking me about when I had a big break, and I could tell you about there's so many breaks I think in my life. So is it, you have to break it down. So I have to say, I okay, could, I would tell you so many breaks. Yeah, then you yeah. ask about about a time or a specific thing, and you just go back into the break that really mattered to you. Yeah, and and and. Um, how about how about uh, times where interviews went terribly wrong? Do you ever have times where you're like, this isn't working? Like you felt so uncomfortable that you just canceled it? Or you get to the end of the show and you're like, we're not airing that? Has there been times like I that? I tell them within the interview, if I wait till the end of the show, I've now wasted an hour of my life with this, not sitting on the truth and not saying it. If there's ever a thing that's uncomfortable, you have to absolutely call it out. I have to. I say it right there. Now, calling it out could be calling it out in a mean way that turns a person off and you've lost the friendship and you've lost the interview and you've lost the whole thing and it's just blah and it's weird and it's awkward. But calling it out in, a, in the right way actually helps get to productivity. To be able to say, I've now been doing this interview for half hour because I really want to know how you got your first customers because I'm struggling to get my first customers with this new idea. Yeah. And I'm not getting it. Now the audience gets to hear your challenge, my challenge as the interviewer, and the guest gets to hear what I'm looking for instead of me nodding along like an idiot going, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's great. I'm saying, this isn't working. Let's bring it back. And now what most uh, professional podcasters and creators would do is edit out all the stuff that happens before. I don't want to edit it out. I want to show that conversations are a little bit messy, but we have to stand up for what we want. I want my audience to know this is awkward. This is awkward. Wait, wait, Andrew's going to pounce. And if for some reason I don't, I want them to pounce on me. I want that. I want that reality. I want that realism. I want it to be like Scotch night at my office or at my house. So it's raw, but, but I mean, have you done that though? So this isn't working oh, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've absolutely you done have. that. Okay. You yeah. have. Okay. If so you join my email list right now, one of the first things you're going to get is an email from me where one guest did not give me anything except for cliche, generic, general answers. And yeah. I ask them over and over again, and then I call them out on it. And I do that so that everyone who joins my email list knows this is what we stand for. Even if you don't listen to it, if you just get the email telling you the story, you don't click the link to listen to it, I want you to know this is what we stand for. If I'm having an hour-long conversation, I'm not wasting my time with somebody giving me generic answers. I want the specifics. I want something useful. And if I'm not getting it, I'm going to call it out. And if I'm not calling it out, I want you, the audience, to call it out. We have to get to business here. We have to get down to something that matters. So you, so you would just not do that show then? It would just be like, that's fine. We've got enough content coming in. We could just skip that one. If it before the, first of all, I have research before yeah. an interview so that I know what I'm, what I'm going for. Yeah. I have pre-interviews from before so I know where we're going. And then if in addition to all that, things fail, it's very rare and I want to call it out. Yeah. What, what makes it good? Like what makes you... Um, like an interview, like what makes a good interviewee for you? What's, a, you know, in terms of like, why come on with a guest and, you know, what kind of stories are you looking for? It's somebody who is relatable, who did something that we aspire to be more similar to, that we aspire to, to, to do ourselves. So when you see Nathan Barry, who was one of the early guests on my podcast. Convert kit, right? 
convert kit right yeah. now when you just see that he was writing online that it was that he's just a regular guy blogging and writing and that he came up with this idea you care about him when he now tells you his revenues are in the millions of dollars from this bootstrap operation you care about you care about him and you want to do the same thing and you start to think all right if he can do this at home with nothing but a computer like me what can i do why am i not doing it what can i learn from how he did it it's that relatable person so nathan barry was on before convertkit was a thing before convertkit was even an email marketing company it was mostly a way to collect email addresses and drip a couple of email messages and that's it but we cared about him because he was a person who was not getting enough attention hardly getting any attention in the tech press if at all mm. what was his revenues at at that time what was his um, revenues you remember you know, I, I mean, don't remember. Is there like a uh, qualifier? You need to be making at least one, you know, a million or or five million. I don't or think it's a number, but I'll give you a sense of where Nathan Barry was. Nathan Barry was at a place where, after the interview, he came to my office for Scotch Night. He yeah. was sitting around the this table with other entrepreneurs, asking questions like, you know, at what point did, did any of you like take a mortgage on your house to build your business? Asking questions like that, and then. The next question is, well, why are you looking to take an, another mortgage on your house? And then other people had opinions about it. They did not want to take mortgages out for their software companies. They would raise money. They had something else. But when we asked him why, it was because the ads that he was buying were good, but the payoff wasn't coming for months in the future. He needed some money to make sure that he was never short of payroll, that he was never missing his bills. And so from that conversation, I said, you know what? Let me just write you a check. And I wrote him a check for $25,000 as a zero interest loan. I said, if you ever do decide to take on investors, make me one of the first investors. And it was, uh, it was a loan with no deadline. Frankly, he could have never returned the money ever in his life, or he could have returned it later on, or he could have turned it into equity. We did have a couple of email ex uh, text exchanges where he felt apologetic for not converting it. He just wanted to send the money back. I said, absolutely, send the money back. Yeah. And so that's where he was. It wasn't about the dollars that he had, the profitability. It was that he was doing something that other entrepreneurs were dying to do. And yes, money does matter. He did have big revenues, and we care about that. We're not just in it to do creative work here um, mm -hmm. as entrepreneurs. I think there's that we need we need revenue. But he, he was definitely early on. And By do the way, you feel it? I did get to I did get to invest a few months ago. He sent me a message saying. Uh, some people on my team who got equity want to sell it. Do you want to buy some? And I said, yes, let's buy it. Yeah. How many, how many companies have you invested in from, from meeting through Mixergy? Not that many. Um, I, there's one, there are a couple actually that are going to announce it and I can't, I yeah. don't know if I could say it or not. I wish that, I wish that, you know what I love right now about investing in companies is AngelList has made it so smooth. I don't have to have last minute documents that I need to sign. I don't have wacky document software to sign for for uh, wire transfers and all that. They make the whole thing so easy. One thing that I think that Angelus could make easier is just be clear about what we can communicate and what we can't. The communication between the founder and the investors is still a weak point. There is no system in there where they could say, we are now announcing the investment. Andrew, can you help promote it? So now, for all I know, this one company that I invested in that I love, I'm allowed to talk about, and they would love for me to talk about with you. But who knows? There's not there's not enough clarity on that. Yeah. So you're a big fan of AngelList. Uh, we're, we're getting to the end of the show. I want to make sure you get some time to talk about the book. I'm, I'm halfway through. 
easy, great read. But um, tell us a bit about the book and anything else you, you want out of the book as an as an interviewer. And remember, I call people out. So if you're not getting enough out, call me out on it and say, you know what, it's not very helpful for me. No, actually, it was very helpful. And, and you know, I took so, – so, for example, getting the stories, that's not, not mm-hmm. something as an interviewer that I – you know, like I like I get stories, but I didn't realize how important it is. And, and you made the point in the book that was very um, poignant. You know, it stuck with me. So I actually copied and pasted and put them in my template of interview questions. So there's three questions. Um you know, and they think it was, you know, give me an example of that or how did that make you feel, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it was really good. When's it coming out? When's the book coming out? It's coming out mid-October. Okay, on Amazon? On Amazon, yep, yep. And everywhere where fine books are sold because if they're not selling it there, they're not selling fine books. Um, but I, I, I'll tell you, we did make um, our first sales just happened unexpectedly. I was doing this reading because I wanted some feedback from people in my audience, and the guy who leads sales training at People AI, the software that's made for salespeople, his name is Johnny Chan. He said, Andrew, why don't you come and teach these techniques to our salespeople? He says, salespeople need to have better conversations too. Nobody's using these interview Absolutely, techniques yeah. in, in sales calls. So he's got people who are selling their software. They're listening to me. He goes, we're buying these books for the people, for our, for our team. He bought does. We didn't even have a system in place for selling books. There's no pre-order sales or anything, but he says, we want to buy these books right away. They bought dozens of the books. And so the first sales have been made. And then I'm hearing salespeople hit me up and tell me how they're using these techniques in sales. I'll give you an example. One guy messages me and he says, you know, our, our philosophy is we're not just here to be candy for your business. We want to solve real problems. But he says, when we're calling up clients and we're saying, what's your real problem? Nobody wants to tell us what their big problems are at work. That's like, you know, it's it's almost treacherous to reveal the inner problems of a business to some dude who just wants to sell you something. He says, I'm trying to think of how I can get people to be open with me. And he goes, oh, yeah. Andrew in his interviews gets people to be open with him by first being open himself, by talking about a frailty. And I talk about in the book about how I wrestled with whether I should do that or not. And anyway... So early in a call, he'll say, uh, I'm glad we're getting to talk. We had this issue here at work. And he talks openly about it, a real issue that they had at work that's causing mm-hmm. them problems. Yeah. And then he gets into the conversation. And by doing that subtle little thing, he's creating an atmosphere where it is okay to share. In fact, it's awkward if he shared and you're not. We as human beings, as society members, we've been trained over generations to reciprocate. If somebody gives you something and you don't give something back, society shuns you for being one-sided, for being a taker. And so it creates this atmosphere where the other person could talk about problems. And if people AI can solve them, which their, their software can when it comes to salespeople do a lot, then great. If not, they'll, they'll know it's not a good fit and move on. That is phenomenal, and that's the type of thing that happens when you know how to how to have a good conversation. Yeah, that's great, good stuff, Andrew. I want to make sure that you get off to your uh, to your next call. So I want to thank you so much for your time today. I've enjoyed it. And yeah. How can people find the name of the book? Is is again? Stop. It's stop asking questions, and there's stop. really okay, a good right. reason why in conversations, even for me as an interviewer, you've got to stop asking questions. It's the first tip that you'll get. If you go to stopaskingquestions.co, not .com, stopaskingquestions.co, you'll get that tip, that technique. will really do some real training. And if you want to buy the book, you'll say, well, Andrew gave me a lot of these tips. Maybe I don't need them. Or you say, I need even more, and you'll go yeah. buy the book. But stopaskingquestions.co. Thanks for having me on, man. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software big break could be right around the corner. Yeah.